This is Divorce and Done with Rob and Darren. You're listening to the Best Divorced Podcast. Rob and Darren, the Best Divorced Podcast. The Best Divorced Podcast. Welcome back to Divorce and Done. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt on the Best Divorce Podcast. In our opinion, Darren Schmidt, how you doing? Rob, I am in the future, an hour ahead like everyone else, so I'm feeling good. The light is still <laughs> beaming down on me as we record yes. in the evening, so all is well. How are you enjoying the sunlight on your face? Uh, I love these extra hours of sun. Uh, last night, uh, it was like, what time was it? Seven o'clock? The sun hadn't set yet. I said, oh man, I want a cup of coffee. So I went out. <laughs> I I really wanted like a decaf espresso because you don't want to ruin the sleep. So I went to this hipster cafe by my house. They were still open. There were tons of people in there chatting. This hipster cafe also sells like gifts and knickknacks and it's sort of like a drugstore. So I looked at the drugstore things. There's people sitting there. I go up to the bar. I'm ready to ask for my decaf latte or decaf espresso. And they stop making coffee like a half hour before they close. They're like, sorry, we have to tidy up the rest of the shop. But okay. I went and got the decaf, got the dollar coffee at McDonald's, because everyone knows it's dollar coffee at McDonald's time. And speaking of dollar coffee at McDonald's, you just put out our fantastic newsletter through Substack, where you reminisced about where we started drinking dollar coffees in law school to getting exactly where we are right now on this podcast and this program, where we bring public legal education to all of our friends and all of our listeners. But that's what I did last night because there was so much sunshine. I had hope and we want everyone else to have hope that's listening to this program. You get some uh, Percocets at the drugstore. You are buzzing, Rob. I love it. Fire it up. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, questions. That's what we're doing this episode. We've got some to answer. So thank you to everyone that sent them in. Everyone knows there's two ways to send them to us. Email lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com or by the voicemail machine speakpipe.com slash divorced and done. I guess there's a third way you could maybe uh, send the message in a bottle. I think I've referenced that previously. Send us a message in a bottle and we find it, we will answer it. It's on you to find us and put it in the right body of water or by carrier pigeon, however you want to get it to us. But if you get us a message in a bottle, we'll probably address it unless it's weird. But anyway, onwards to the questions. Rob, are you ready? Uh, all set. Let's go. Here we go. Question one is question from a TikTok follower. Okay. Thanks for coming over from that platform to here. Good evening, Rob and Darren. I have two questions pertaining to my divorce. Number one, my ex-spouse's lawyer sent me a divorce judgment that was filed on June 2nd, 2020. I received no prior email from them uh, pertaining to the filing of the document. I only received an email stating it was filed on that previous date, the um, date previously referenced June 2nd, 2020, I believe. Was this done so that I could not appeal the judgment? What would the ramifications be if I was not served in a timely manner? Number two, in the divorce judgment, we never divided matrimonial property. I'm currently in court dealing with this matter, 
as I had filed a certificate of Liz pendants on the property. My ex from the date of the divorce being granted has borrowed $80,000 against the property and wants me to help pay, even though prior to that I had the mortgage bank information information showing that he was pulling out thousands of dollars against it before that. Am I correct to fight this as I had put money into the down payment of the property, but did not work for most of the marriage, which was about 18 years in duration? Thanks for your assistance and your content. No problem. All right. So Rob, we have a divorce judgment that was granted back in 2020. There's some indication from the listener that she may not have known that the divorce judgment was granted. The appeal period passed. Now she's stuck with it. But I think the more important thing is that they intentionally severed the division of family property and debt from the divorce judgment that litigation is ongoing and concerns about debt being drawn against the property on a go forward basis and previously. So what do you make of all of this? To question one, and this is interesting because in our hundreds of questions, Darren, I don't think we've ever dealt with the notion of someone wanting to appeal their divorce judgment. Yeah. Because we don't really talk about divorce judgments. They're step six, the done part of divorced and done. And the way you get there, it's the end of your meat and potatoes. Uh, as you suggested, this person likely severed the divorce, which means we've been separated for so long. We both just want to be divorced, even though we may have other issues going on, property, still having parenting issues, maybe some support issues. And the court will say, yep, we'll give you your divorce. So you both can maybe move on, likely if one of you wants to get remarried. That's why we would sever a divorce instead of forcing a deal to deal with everything. They're not as common as they used to be. But when you get divorced and either your lawyer uh, or you, if you're self-represented, would sign off on that divorce judgment and it gets submitted to court and then a judge signs it and dates it. And that divorce judgment does not come into effect for 30 days from the time or the day that it effectively becomes an order, which is when a judge signs it. So that 30-day window is theoretically for any time period if someone goes, wait, I really don't want to get divorced. I thought about it. Uh, Please, I want to open this up again so that I'm not divorced. Uh, And in our almost 10 years of doing this, Darren, I've never had anybody that said, I don't want this or I want to appeal this. Most people are pretty excited by the time we get to the divorce judgment stage because there's been so much work, usually at least one or two years to get to that point. We're not really talking an appeal. So I'm, I'm guessing in this situation, either there wasn't a consent judgment Maybe uh, this person's ex's lawyer went to court ex parte, which would mean without notice to the listener, and said, hi, we want to sever the divorce. Can we do that? And the court granted that application. I can't think of a circumstance where someone would get a divorce severed without notice to the other party. Yeah. So this is, it's, even though I do want to move to the second part of the question, I just find this one question exceptional in that I can't really think of a hypothetical that fits into this or why someone would want to appeal, appeal a divorce judgment after it 
had been granted, presumably on notice. What do you think on that piece? An out-of-the-box thought is yeah. you're divorced. You didn't want to get the divorce order. Is it now possible to remarry them? And obviously, <laughs> I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek. You looked at me like I was crazy because that's a crazy thing to say. Hey, but People get uh, remarried. Sure, but I don't think that was the essence of the question. I'm guessing at its core, the essence of the question is this. I just was caught by surprise that the appeal period passed. I didn't have notice that it was submitted or whatever happened here to get this divorce request before the court. And all of a sudden I'm divorced and the appeal period passed. But I, I ask what prejudice is there anyway, other than all of the corollary relief, the balance of our divorced and done steps hadn't been addressed which is the normal course of action in a divorce exactly. case is all those other things are dealt with before the divorce order. But I wouldn't, I mean, without knowing more, I wouldn't lose a lot of sleep over the fact the divorce judgment was granted in this case. It's been uh, since 2020 that this divorce judgment was made. It's now 2023. There's been a lot of time that's passed. Hopefully some things have resolved. One of them we know though is the ongoing saga pertaining to the family home or matrimonial property. So on that piece, the ex-spouse was drawing on a line of credit on the property. The listener had filed a certificate of Liz pendants on title to the property or what we would call in BC, certificate of pending litigation. But there seems to be some ongoing issues here. So what do you think on this, Rob? Uh, we have the divorced and done steps for a reason. Hopefully the, these folks, by dealing with property, uh, you know your step four, meaning you've dealt with uh, your parenting, you've dealt with child support. Uh, he borrowed $80,000 against the property. And what is not clear to me, uh, if there's a Liz Pendens on the, certi- on the property, they're fighting about it. Perhaps the property has not been sold yet, and maybe the other side has brought application to lift that Liz Pendens and get this property listed and sold. Uh, And if that is the case, there's an $80,000 debt on there. If that money came out during the marriage, it's likely matrimonial property, presumably divisible equally between the two of you. If you have a really good information about why you shouldn't be liable for that or why it's his debt alone, now might be the time to raise those pieces. Uh, as she concludes, am I correct to fight this as I put money into the down payment uh, but did not work most of the marriage for 18 years? The two pieces that jump out at there, your money that went into the down payment was that supposed to be divisible between the two of you? Or can you show that you made that um, deposit for the down payment from exempt dollars, meaning that shouldn't be divided between the two of you? I don't know. And the other piece, if you weren't working for 18 years and he was the sole breadwinner, were you working before? Was your career disadvantaged by being at home? And the only reason I say those pieces is potentially there's a spousal support claim that also would allow you to maximize uh, what you're receiving here in your divorce, which spousal support, step five, you are following the steps. Unfortunately, the interesting piece here is you had the done piece off the top with the divorce judgment, but now you're dealing with all that corollary relief. Uh, does anything different jump out at you, Darren? 
You know, uh, no, and you've addressed it all technically uh, the right way. What I think on mortgages and lines of credit on family homes and people accessing those credit instruments after separation, the hope is that there's enough equity or value in the balance of the family property or in the house or other stuff that you can be credited with other stuff, other equity to make up for that drawdown on the line of credit from the other party. And if there's not, then there's not a lot that can be done because uh, the lender, the secured lender, they take priority. If the house sells, that mortgage has to be paid out. And the if bank. there's yeah. left over at the end, you might get in your final final order, although you're already divorced here, your final order, an order that he pay you back $80,000. Well, if he owns nothing else, doesn't have a job, and it's going to be really difficult to collect on that $80,000, then it's going to be really difficult to collect on the $80,000. So as always, we say, is the juice worth the squeeze? But if there's $80,000 to be made up somewhere else in either equity in this home, if it sells, or other family property, then go forward with this. He should be responsible for that $80,000 and make it up somewhere else in your family case. I, I think that's the easiest answer in this instance. So thank you for the question. Anything else on that, Rob? No, uh, we wish the individual well. I mean, obviously there's lots of moving pieces still that they'll have to resolve. And the, the only issue is they did the done part first before they did the hard work of the substance of getting divorced. All right, let's go to our next question. The title is called Child Support. All right, we know this is a step three divorced and done step question. Listener says, hi there. A 16-year-old boy is attending a sport academy school program in a province different than his parents. Does the father have to continue paying child support to the mother while their son lives away for the school year. Both parents are equally sharing the tuition and living costs associated with their son's program. Listener says, P.S. I love your TikToks and now about to delve into your podcast. Well, that's very nice. Thank you for this question. Uh, so the child's living away for at least the school year, not living with any parent, and they're splitting equally what we would call Section 7 Extraordinary Expenses for this child. What comes immediately to mind, Rob, is that uh, it would strike me as appropriate to suspend Section 3 child support in this case because I agree. the child is not living with anyone. So the rational thing to do here would be uh, let's all agree to suspend child support, except if the child is living at home during the summer months, primarily with one parent, then that makes sense to resume child support for those months. But for the months the child is away at the sports academy, it would make a lot of sense to suspend child support, but do you have different thoughts on that? I completely agree. As the listener here says here, both parents are equally sharing the tuition and living costs. And I would imagine being an away program, those tuition and living costs are probably pretty high, particularly if that child's in another province, you're not coming home on weekends or doing anything else. That program's responsible for you all of the time. Uh, child support is the right of the child, not the parent. You're both sharing those costs and paying for that child. So there shouldn't be any other child support. Wonderful. 
All right, let's go to a, a question. That was easy. I, that, that was, was a easy. Good one. I, there I, you I, go. I, I like a quick and easy. That was perfect. Law, folks, lob us more softballs. We need those. <laughs> We're waiting for them. You often get send too us. many hard technical questions with long stories, and we love the long stories. I we think do. long stories will be more fun when when this actually becomes a call in show, and you and I have the ability to take live phone calls. That's coming, folks. Actually, you know what? On that point, I'm I'm going to interject here while we're between questions. There's a podcast. Uh, I think I don't know if you listen to it. I occasionally listen to it. We've talked about some money management things on here. Uh, the folks over at Ramsey Solutions do some interesting things. They have a new podcast called Entre Leadership, where they take business questions. And normally, they're a national call-in show, so they have live interactions with listeners. They don't have live interactions on, or, or they don't have the ability to have instant call-ins. But what they're doing with certain listeners is setting up a time for people to phone in and basically make an appointment to appear on the podcast. I don't know if that's something we could do, but maybe. We haven't talked about it. I'm throwing this at you live, but you, to you have know a what? brief interaction. Yeah. Number one, we love all the listener interaction. Like we love it. It makes, it makes this run. We know the thousands of you listening at home, only a fraction of you send in questions. And you, you, I think the thing that makes this really work is that we do it in a discreet, respectful way. Like we don't reveal your identity. Uh, we, we try, even though if you send us the gory details of your case to make it less gory as we read the question, um, we, we, this is a user, not necessarily family friendly. We don't hear kids listening to this, but we, we try and make this accessible for everyone. But we do realize that if you're going through a divorce, you're listening to this, you, there's some trepidation likely in sending in your questions to us, but know that we love them. We treat them with care and whether it's at one point, People phone in and they do it live, although I could see there'd be trepidation with that. Certainly by sending us the emails and the voicemails, we love it. And so as always, if you have suggestions about show format, what you like, what you don't like, whether you want Rob to get the Easter plaid shirt, uh, whether you want Rob to get- We got no responses on that, by the way. Whether you want Rob to get a green suit uh, from a Chinese entity or what you want. That that, that was good feedback. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we like that. We love your listener feedback. So uh, let's answer our third, probably last question this week. It's called Questions About Family Court. And there's quite a long background to this. And the background, I think we've addressed in similar fact sets for uh, other questions that we've gotten over the last month or so. So we'll leave the background out. But there's four rapid fire style questions that we will address. The listener says, I'm a BC resident, so I'm the BC lawyer here. I suspect I'll take a run at these, but we'll both address these, Rob, because the listener deserves your brain as well. Number one, what is the difference between a notice of family claim and a notice of application? I will make this broad so that whether you're living in BC or Alberta or anywhere in the country, we can draw a distinction on these things. A notice of family claim is what we call a commencement document or an originating document, something that opens a file at your courthouse in a superior court, much like a statement of claim for divorce and division of property 
is in Alberta or whatever it's called in Ontario. It just gets your file open and it lets the court know and your ex-spouse know what are the things you're claiming. And you state only the facts, not evidence in it. And it's a generic sort of pleading. A notice of application is what some provinces would call a motion or an application or a notice of application. It's an interim request for an an order on an interim basis that you would make in a chamber's hearing with a court for some interim relief. And it would be supported typically by an affidavit. And many of you listening to this are familiar with the joys of chamber's proceedings, whether in person or virtual. We've addressed that previously on this podcast, but notice of application is a request once your file is open for an interim order to be made by the court. Have I missed anything, Rob? No, I think that was perfect. I One thing I know that sticks out for me, when we file that initial um, notice of family claim or commencement document, someone will be the plaintiff and the other party will be the defendant. The plaintiff brings the application. The other person is defending. Uh, that defendant also has the option to file a counterclaim, which mm. we usually do, because even though the other person started the action, we can say, hold on, just because you started the action doesn't mean I get to ask for things globally too. And that commencement document, simplest commencement document that we all might think of as a statement of claim for divorce is a wish list for everything that you want. So someone can bring the commencement document. The other person can bring a counterclaim. They both have equal weight. Uh, There's no magic to being the first person in line. And that doesn't give you uh, a heads up or excuse me, uh, uh, an advantage over the other person. But when you bring a notice of application, there'll always be the applicant, the person who is making the application, and the respondent, the person who has to respond to the application. And I've often had conversations with clients who get concerned or upset because they were the original plaintiff on the claim, but we're responding to an application that says, why am I the respondent? That's a distinction there because you can have those, as you said, Darren, chambers applications or one-off applications for things like support or parenting time at any one moment in time that don't decide the entire claim. And I know, Rob, that you recommend everyone listen to chamber music before they had to chambers hearings. Is that, am I right? Uh, I love classical music. So thank you for that little joke there. You're, you're more of a jazz guy, but I, I also enjoy jazz. One thing I, I will say this cause my dad raised this when you and I first became lawyers 10 years ago, I'd talk about going to chambers. My dad is not a lawyer, but he used to watch a lot of legal shows on TV. So uh, predominantly American legal shows. So he says, when you go to judges chambers, are you sitting and arguing in their office? No, you're not. That's sitting in the larger courtroom. And it's just being in the courtroom in that docket thing, chambers. But yeah, you can get pumped up, uh, uh, listen to a little Baroque music uh, on mm-hmm. the way to court, uh, feel, feel, listen to some power Baroque. That's what it's all about. Nothing gets the blood flowing faster than a little power Baroque, folks. <laughs> Uh, that's a good tip because question two is, can a person self-represent in court? Of course they can. We see like over 
40% of that in family matters? 64% in Alberta. Wow. 64% of our current active family matters, one of the parties is self-represented, which unfortunately I think speaks primarily to cost of having a lawyer represent you. Uh, But more than anything, it puts a lot of pressure on our courts and makes usually makes matters go longer. But of course, you can self-represent. Hopefully, the spend you're making on legal fees is to stay out of court, to have those lawyers help draft a final separation agreement, move you through the divorced and done steps in an amicable way, which leads into question three of this broader question. Can you get costs if you have to go to court for something in your family case and you've done everything you can to stay out of court, but the other side refused? Well, I guess not to get too technical here, it's possible to get costs if you're successful even on an interim chambers hearing or certainly more broadly on your uh, family file. But I'm going to say general rule of thumb, broad thoughts on this. It's pretty rare to get any sort of significant costs against the other party. And what I mean is, say you spend $10,000 on a chambers proceeding with a lawyer, which it can get that expensive. It can be five dollars to $10,000 for a chambers hearing. That's drafting affidavits, sitting in court, uh, negotiating, all that sort of stuff. Even if you're successful, you'll get a fraction of that back. Cost rules are dependent on the rules of court in your jurisdiction. They will speak specifically to the court's jurisdiction to award costs and then how much those costs will be. But typically, they're a fraction of any actual costs you've expended on a lawyer, or even if you've had to take time off from work, or pay for parking, or print all the stuff at Staples, and all of the ancillary costs that come along with hard costs and disbursements that you pay to the courthouse for filing stuff, even if you get costs, it's not going to cover all of that stuff. But what are your thoughts on costs in family cases, Rob? Uh, I would completely agree. Uh, the most I ever generally see for costs are one-off in a chamber's application. Very rarely. Usually no more than about $500 traditionally. I think if we go to trial and someone was really unreasonable at trial, I know you and I have talked about this recently, if someone had a slam dunk offer and a matter went slam dunk another way, maybe you're going to get really big costs. But in family matters... We don't generally see that. It's more on the civil side uh, where people weren't former romantic partners or getting divorced because judges know that in family law, even though you're done at court, if you have kids, you still have to be involved with that other person. Uh, You have other go forward conduct as opposed to third parties in straight civil litigation, for example, car accident litigation or corporate litigation, where you're going to have parties that are never dealing with each other ever again. So courts are less less inclined, I think, to order costs because we don't want to discourage people from going to court, especially if you can't work something out. All right. The last question in this bundle of questions is about sale, uh, a sale of a matrimonial home. So the listener asks, when would a court award sole conduct of sale to one spouse for selling the matrimonial home, as opposed to the default, which would be joint conduct of sale, presuming both spouses are on title, you both own the house. When would a court step in and say, despite 
uh, party A and party B, you both own the house, but party B, we're not going to allow you to participate in the sale of your own home. Party A will have exclusive uh, authority over the sale of the house. And I can say it's pretty rare for a court to make that order. It's discretionary. I, I won't provide a legal test in making this answer or providing this answer. But what I can say is, obviously, if both spouses own the house, it would be exceptional for a court to step in and say, you know what, party B, uh, you have to sit on the sidelines while the other party has exclusive conduct over the sale of this property. Party B's conduct leading up to making such an order would have to be so unreasonable they would have to be jeopardizing either the security or safety of the home or taking just terribly unreasonable positions, not participating constructively in the litigation at all, really just being a menace throughout the course of the litigation to result in an order being made for exclusive conduct of sale. But any additional thoughts on that, Rob? I actually had this a few years ago. Dad mm. was living in the house. Um, it was listed he didn't want the house to sell. He loved the house. He loved where it was, wanted to be there forever. Uh, and I think two or three realtors ended up quitting because dad left the house in such disarray. He was frustrating the deal. They'd say, hey, sir, you need to be out of the house because people are people are coming to look at it. And he'd be there and the house would be filthy. He'd be disgusting. And the court said enough is enough. And we actually, we, we had this recently with our friend james in the city yeah uh, realtor out of toronto we interviewed him he says like, and not to be unkind but you and i are both men i guess men particularly living in squalor uh, in the house although darren i know you are meticulous having been a house guest with your house several times uh no, no one loves There's no energy drinks lying around here uh, we're no, not uh we're no. not messing up the joint but uh point of the story i think as you suggest, if two parties are sincerely engaged in selling the home and making honest, good faith efforts to advance their divorce and maximize value for everybody, which everyone should be doing getting divorced, you might disagree with each other and you might have really good reasons to make applications. But, you know, uh, vacuum, fl flush the toilets, don't leave underwear on the counter in the kitchen. No, Folks don't want to see that. Because uh, in those situations, a court may intervene and say, yeah, you've threatened this listing. Uh, this house needs to be sold. The only way that's going to happen, uh, filthy person, is if you're not there. So there we go. Okay. Well, thank you for those questions. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in again. Uh, we love you. We love this project. We know it is the best access to justice thing going, at least we think, in this country. And we're so happy to have everyone along for the ride. Darren Schmidt, thank you so much for being with me. I'm Rob Woodward. This has been Divorced and Done, and we look forward to being with you again. Divorce obviously sucks, but at least it only costs 20 bucks. 2020, 20, 20, $20 divorce. Let's get a 2020, 20, $20 divorce. We can save money and split our stuff. We'll both pitch in. 
10 bucks. I saw this ad on the side of a truck and it, it seems totally legit, right? Like, no, no, man. We can trust the truck ad for legal advice, it's, right? It's, like, it's no red flags here. Let's get a 20, 20, 20, 20 dollar divorce. Let's get a 20, 20, 20, 20 dollar divorce. Let's get a 20, 20, 20, 20 dollar divorce. Let's get a 20, 20, 20, 20 dollar divorce.